Welcome to the Iron Thread Village podcast. I am your host, Zach Richards. As this is the first podcast from our mindfulness community here in the greater Phoenix area, I want to spend this time reviewing with you, the listener, on what Iron Thread Village is and where it comes from. First and foremost, it is not a village made of iron threads. Rather, it is a space that we hold for mindfulness practitioners that wish to weave their practice into a group setting and create wholesome relationships with others that become as strong as iron. Having a group of people to practice with is particularly useful for practitioners who are not sure where to start or for those who wish to deepen their practice. Now our group follows a set of guidelines that have been handed down to us from many generations of teachers who were masters of mindfulness. Since the monk Gotama, a prince of the Sakya clan in India, taught his first realization to his fellow ascetics on the path to enlightenment. The teachings have shifted and transformed over the ages, through conflict as well as times of peace, until they spread throughout all of Asia. Today, there are four communities in the Phoenix area that practice in the Plum Village tradition. The Iron Thread Village in Mesa is just one of those four. The other three communities include Desert Cactus in North Phoenix, Spirit of the Sun in Tempe, and Calm Village in South Phoenix. Each of these communities create a space every month, or perhaps every week, for practitioners to meditate and learn more about the teaching together. So, now we know a little bit about Iron Thread Village, but what is the teaching exactly? To explore the teaching, let's understand where it came from. Now brace yourselves. We're going to travel backwards in history, then forwards again to the present. So if you find yourself getting nauseous, have a barf bag handy. It's a bit like the Superman ride at Six Flags, but with a lot less whiplash. Now, the teaching comes from the Plum Village tradition. As of 2017, the Plum Village movement comprises of 589 monastics and 9 monasteries, and 1,271 communities of practice worldwide. An important component of this tradition is the Order of Interbeing, which is a social network of monastics and lay people who have undertaken the 14 mindfulness trainings. There is also a community inspired by this tradition aimed at young people between the ages of 18 and 35 called Wake Up. Other initiatives include Wake Up Schools and the Earth Holders Sangha, of which my community here, the Iron Thread Village, is associated with. Let's get deeper into the order of interbeing. It's not a cult or a house of Hogwarts, I assure you. The order of interbeing was founded in the Linji tradition of Buddhist meditative practice and emphasizes the four spirits, non-attachment from views, direct experimentation on the nature of interdependent origination through meditation, appropriateness, and skillful means. To understand where the Linji tradition comes from, let's take a quick look at the roots of Zen Buddhism. Zen Buddhism usually means Japanese Zen, although there is also Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese Zen, called Chen, Xian, and Tian, respectively. There are two major schools of Japanese Zen, called Soto and Rinzai, which originated in China. This article in particular that I pulled from ThoughtCo.com is about the Chinese origins of Rinzai Zen. 
Chan is the original Zen, a school of Mahayana Buddhism, founded in 6th century China. For a time, there were five distinct schools of Chan, but three of those were absorbed into a fourth, Linji, which would also be called Rinzai in Japan. The fifth school is Kaodong, which is the ancestor of Soto Zen. The Linji school emerged during a turbulent time in Chinese history. The founding teacher, Linji Yixuan, probably was born about 810 CE and died in 866, which was near the end of the Tang dynasty. Linji would have been a monk when a Tang emperor banned Buddhism in 845. Some schools of Buddhism, such as the esoteric Misung school, completely disappeared because of the ban, and Huayan Buddhism nearly so. Pure Land survived because it enjoyed broad popularity, and Chan was largely spared because of its many monasteries were in remote areas, not in the cities. During the last days of the Tang Dynasty, and through the chaotic Five Dynasties period, five distinct schools of Chan emerged that came to be called the Five Houses. To be sure, some of these houses were taking shape while the Tang Dynasty was at its peak, but it was at the beginning of the Song Dynasty that they were considered schools in their own right. Of these five houses, Lin Ji probably was best known for its eccentric style of teaching. Following the example of the founder, Master Lin Ji, Lin Ji teachers shouted, grabbed, struck, and otherwise manhandled students as a means to shock them into awakening. This must have been effective, as Lin Ji became the dominant school of Chan during the Song Dynasty. The former stylized manner of koan contemplation, as practiced today in Rinzai, developed in Song Dynasty Lin Ji, even though much of the koan literature is much older. Very basically, koans are questions asked by Zen teachers that defy rational answers. Koans are contemplated through a particular meditation practice, Students are required to present their understanding to their teachers and may have to present the same koan several times before the answer is approved. This method pushes the student into a state of doubt, sometimes intense doubt, that may be resolved through an enlightenment experience. By the time the Song Dynasty ended in 1279, Buddhism in China already was going into a state of decline. Other Chan schools were absorbed into Linqi, while the Kaodong school faded away in China entirely. All surviving Chan Buddhism in China is from Linji teaching lineages. What followed for Linji was a period of mixing with other traditions, primarily Pure Land. Chan was revived in the early 20th century by Hu Yun, who lived from 1840 to 1959. Although repressed during the Cultural Revolution, Linji Chan today has a strong following in Hong Kong and Taiwan, and a growing following in the West. The Linji tradition also found its way to Vietnam at the Tu Hu Root Temple in the city of Hu, where our founding teacher of the Plum Village tradition, Zen Master Thich Nhat Pan, had first entered at the age of 16. So, why is this Thich Nhat Han guy such a big deal? Why did he decide to begin the Plum Village tradition rather than carry on the Linji teachings in the traditional sense? And why is the podcast host asking himself questions that he already knows the answers to? Well, now here is where we start to move forward through time back to the present.
using the previous roller coaster analogy, we've seen Superman at the top of the coaster, and now we're dropping back into the tunnel. In my research of Thich Nhat Hanh's biography, I came across an excellent article from Lion's Roar dated in October of 2018. I will include the link to this article in the show notes, as I will not be covering the entirety of the article. In 1926, a boy named Nguyen Xuan Bao was born in the ancient imperial capital of Hue, Vietnam. He was attracted to Buddhism from an early age. One of his first childhood memories was seeing a captivating picture of a smiling, peaceful Buddha. Against the wishes of his parents, who felt the life of a monk would be too difficult, Nguyen Xuan Bao joined a Buddhist monastery when he was 16. At 23, he took the full vows of a monk and received the name Thich Nhat Tan. The young monk was sent for training to a traditional institute of Buddhist studies, but was dissatisfied with the narrow curriculum. He left for the University of Saigon, where he could study world literature, philosophy, psychology, and science in addition to Buddhism. At a time when the Vietnamese Buddhist establishment was largely apolitical, he believed Buddhists had to engage directly with people suffering, and that meant getting involved in the political life of the nation. During the Eight-Year War, the nationalist Viet Minh were fighting to end colonial rule. The walls of our temple in Hue were riddled with bullet holes, Thich Nhat Hanh remembers in his latest book, Inside the Now. French soldiers would raid our temples, searching for resistance fighters or food demanding we hand over the last of our rice. Monks were killed, even though they were unarmed. In response to the escalating war, Nhat Hanh founded the Engaged Buddhism Movement. Its mission was to apply Buddhist teachings and practice to the real-world suffering caused by war, social injustice, and political oppression. We wanted to offer a new kind of Buddhism, a Buddhism that could act as a raft, to save the whole country from the desperate situation of conflict, division, and war, he recalls. During this time, Nhat Hanh met Kao Nok Huang, a young biology student who was concerned that Buddhists didn't care enough about the poor. She would become Sister Chen Kong, his closest disciple, and one of the Thirteen Cedars, a group of passionate young activists who studied with and supported him. Not surprisingly, the growing popularity of the engaged Buddhist movement attracted opposition from the conservative Buddhist establishment. Nhat Hanh was accused of sowing the seeds of dissent, and his journal was discontinued. It was still too radical for the majority of elders in the Buddhist establishment, he remembers. They dismissed many of our ideas, and steadily began to silence our voices. Nhat Hanh and his followers needed a place of spiritual refuge, and in 1957, they established Phuong Boi, the fragrant palm leaves hermitage in the Vietnamese highlands. In 1960, the tranquility of Phuong Boi was destroyed when agents of the South Vietnamese government entered the hermitage. They arrested one member and forced others into a strategic hamlet for protection. Thich Nhat Hanh fled to Saigon. There, he decided to accept a fellowship to study comparative religion at Princeton University. After completing his studies at Princeton, 
he had been appointed a lecturer in Buddhism at Columbia. One day in the library, he came across a book that had been taken out only twice before, once in 1915 and again in 1932. Deciding to become the third borrower, he had a strong desire to meet the other two, but they had vanished, and so would he. He had a profound experience of emptiness, which he described in his journal, Everything that is considered to be me will disintegrate. Then what is actually there will reveal itself. In the U.S., Thich Nhat Hanh became an early voice of the anti-war movement. Speaking from experience about the lives of the Vietnamese people, he undertook a well-publicized five-day fast and reported to the United Nations on human rights violations in South Vietnam. When a U.S.-backed military coup overthrew the Diem regime in 1963, Nhat Hanh returned to Vietnam and submitted a peace proposal to the Unified Buddhist Church, which had been formed to bring together the different sects of Vietnamese Buddhism. He called for a cessation of hostilities, the establishment of a Buddhist institute for the country's leaders, and the creation of a center to promote nonviolent social change. The UBC supported the institute, which opened in 1964, as the Institute for Higher Buddhist Studies, but the other two proposals were rejected as the unrealistic dreams of a poet. Undaunted, Nhat Hanh responded by creating experimental pioneer villages that trained residents in self-sufficiency and social change. Realizing that education needed to become action, Nhat Hanh founded the renowned School of Youth for Social Service. SYSS peaceworkers risked their lives going into rural areas to establish schools, build health care clinics, and rebuild villages destroyed by the war. In 1966, Thich Nhat Hanh ordained six SYSS leaders into the New Order of Interbeing, a monastic community dedicated to bringing Buddhism directly into the political and social arena. Members of the order committed themselves to service and the 14 mindfulness trainings. Sister Cheng Kong was one of the six original members, and so was her closest Dharma friend, a young woman named Nat Chi Mai. A few weeks later, Sister Mai placed statues of the Virgin Mary and Avalokiteshvara in front of her and set herself on fire. In her poems and letters, she had asked Buddhists and Catholics to work together for peace, and for peace, she had sacrificed herself. Believing that the best way to help stop the war was speaking directly to Americans about the Vietnamese people's wish for peace, Thich Nhat Hanh accepted an invitation from Cornell University to embark on a U.S.-speaking tour. He left Vietnam for what he thought would be only a few weeks, leaving Sister Chan Kong in charge of his movement. His departure gave the South Vietnamese establishment the chance it had been waiting for. Van Han University dissolved its connection with the SYSS and accused Sister Chen Kong of being a communist. Though SYSS members were attacked and they struggled to raise funds, they persisted courageously in their work to relieve suffering without taking sides. Thich Nhat Hanh made a deep connection with another great peacemaker of his time, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. In a letter to King, Nhat Hanh urged him to publicly oppose the Vietnam War, 
writing, I believe with all my heart that the monks who burned themselves did not aim at the death of the oppressors, but only at a change in their policy. I also believe with all my being that the struggle for equality and freedom you lead in Birmingham, Alabama, is not aimed at the whites, but only at intolerance, hatred, and discrimination. These are the real enemies of man, not man himself. In June 1966, Thich Nhat Hanh presented a peace proposal in Washington urging Americans to stop bombing and offer reconstruction aid free of political or ideological strings. He emphasized that he and his followers favored neither side in the war and wanted only peace. In response, the Vietnamese government immediately banned him from returning home. A trip for peace that was supposed to last a few weeks became 40 years in exile. Grant him asylum in France, Nhat Hanh became chair of the Vietnamese Buddhist Peace Delegation. For the next few years, his activities included establishing the Unified Buddhist Church in France, lecturing at the Sorbonne, and serving as a delegate to the Paris Peace Talks. When Sister Chan Kong joined him in France, the South Vietnamese government exiled her as well. When the war in Vietnam ended in 1975, with North Vietnamese victory, non-communist Vietnamese, ultimately as many as two million, began to flee the country. Hundreds of thousands risked their dangerous journey by sea. They became known as the boat people. Nhat Hanh and his small group of followers in France knew they had to help. Sister Chan Kong rented a fishing boat in Thailand, dressed like a fisherman, and went out to sea to help the boat people. Every time she and her team came across a refugee boat, they gave them food, fuel, and directions to the nearest refugee camp. In 1971, craving the tranquility they had found at Phuong Boi, Nhat Hanh and his followers bought a country property with a tiny ramshackle house southeast of Paris. They called it Sweet Potatoes, and it became Thich Nhat Hanh's first practice center in the West. Sweet Potatoes started as a year-round residence for 11 people healing from the war, but by 1982, it was too small to accommodate all who wanted to practice there. The community bought the land in southern France that would become Plum Village, named for the sweet fruit that grows in the region despite the rocky soil. One of the first things they did was plant a plum orchard and use the profits to help children in developing countries. Since then, Thich Nhat Hanh has created a worldwide community of more than 600 monastics and tens of thousands of lay students. Plum Village in France remains the community's most important monastery and program center. And in the U.S., he has established Deer Park Monastery in Escondido, California, Blue Cliff Monastery in Pine Bush, New York, and Magnolia Grove Monastery in Batesville, Mississippi. Well... That was quite the ride through history, and hopefully all of this time traveling has shed some light on what Iron Thread Village is, its roots with Plum Village, as well as its branches with the other trees of our Greater Phoenix community. The Iron Thread Village meets during the evening of the third Friday of every month. We have a Facebook and meetup page for those who wish to stay connected and up to date on all that is happening. 
So please feel free to join us as a member on those pages and ask questions. If there is a question that we think many people may benefit from, we will do our best to answer them here on this podcast. We will also be announcing all of the events coming up for the other Plum Village communities here in Phoenix. In our next podcast, I will be discussing more about what the Iron Thread Village aims to accomplish moving forward this year in 2019, and what it means to be an Earth Holder. In the meantime, safe journeys, everyone. Thank you.